You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Greeting to our viewers from around the world, and thanks for joining us today. I am Baba Kepasa, the CEO of Toronto Center for Global Leadership in Financial Supervision. Welcome to Supervising a New Normal, which builds on our recent series of webinars that explore the impact of COVID-19 on financial stability and financial inclusion. On March 11th, the WHO, deeply concerned by both the alarming levels of spread and severity, and the alarming levels of global inaction declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Since then, the grim calculus faced by public authorities everywhere has been the stark choices between life, death, and the economy. These are apt words from The Economist magazine. Like health experts, treasuries, central bankers, and supervisors are responding to a fast-moving and extraordinary situation. Never before, have modern economies shut down at the blink of an eye. No efforts have been spared on using monetary and fiscal policies and regulatory forbearance to soften the landing. Yet, the slowdown continues. The longer the world has to endure a subpar economy, the less likely it is to snap back after the pandemic. Under the current circumstances of uncertainty, mounting deaths, labels such as recovery, and reopening don't mean much. We're in a new normal. In today's episode, we sit down with three prominent experts to explore the new normal. We circulated their bios to you in advance. Dr. David Nabarro, Special Envoy of WHO Director General on COVID-19. Dr. Stefan Engvis, Governor of the Swedish Central Bank and Chair of the Toronto Center. Ms. Sokora Heisen, Peru Superintendent of Banks, Insurance and Pension Fund Administrators, and a board member of Toronto Centre. Greetings to our speakers. I know that many of our viewers have questions for these experts. Please type your questions in the Q&A tab, which you will find below the video screen. So let me start with uh, Dr. Navarro. David, welcome back. Let's take stock of the situation where we are. I have a two-part question for you. We hear a lot about second and third wave of the pandemic. Now that many jurisdictions are reopening, should we be concerned about these waves? And secondly, the WHO has been criticized for responding slowly at the outset of COVID-19. Has WHO learned any lessons from the first wave that it will apply to change how it responds to the next manifestations of COVID-19? Thank you. So thanks very much indeed, and it's great to be back with everybody again. Uh, I'm David Nabarro, uh, and I just want you to know that if I can respond to questions during this webinar, I'll happily do so. But also don't hesitate to get in touch with me through 
Babak and others if there are residual concerns that you have. And I do want to greet colleagues who are on this panel. The first and most important thing to say is that this is a new virus. And those of us working in public health have only known about it since January. And we've been learning about it all the time. It's not influenza. It's not Ebola. It's a coronavirus. And coronaviruses are not well known to us. There are only a few of them around. Actually, one of them, quite common, causes a cold. But others have been quite rare. And so they are viruses that we need to take very seriously. I encourage everybody to recognize that because it's new, we have to learn. And because we have to learn, we have to really be open with each other about what we're seeing. A couple of quick comments, therefore. This virus is now spreading everywhere in our world. It's going into Asia, into Africa. It's going through Latin America. It's in the Middle East. It's right across Europe into the Far East. And of course, it's throughout North America. And it's a virus that requires all of us to change our behavior so that we reduce our risk of being infected. It's a virus that causes high levels of sickness and death amongst older people and people with other diseases. And it's a virus that I don't believe is going to go away in the foreseeable future. There are quite a number of issues that I need to just be very clear on. The first is that we have to be able as humanity to defend ourselves well against this virus in order that our economies can work, in order that people can be employed, and in order that life can go on. But defending ourselves against the virus means all of us being aware of what it can do, how it spreads, and what action needs to be taken if you see people with the virus in your own community or nearby. Most importantly, take it seriously, act quickly, and respond robustly as soon as you have even a few cases. It doesn't mean locking down your whole economy. It does mean making sure you've got basic, community-level public health services working so that people with the disease can be identified quickly and isolated so that outbreaks do not build up and catch everybody by surprise. Let me show you just how quickly this can happen. In the space of four weeks, an outbreak can increase in size a thousand times. And once an outbreak becomes large, then containing it is very difficult. As we've seen in New York, as we've seen in Northern Italy, as we're seeing right now in Brazil. So to everybody, I say that the most important requirement is that as soon as there is disease, there is rapid action to contain and prevent any outbreak from developing. Now, the World Health Organization has watched what's happening in different countries around the world. We've seen numerous examples of countries doing the right thing and acting quickly. New Zealand, extraordinary results. South Korea, very good. Singapore, excellent. Germany, excellent. But we've also seen examples of countries that have moved slowly and are still struggling to contain their COVID outbreaks. I won't name them, but I think you'll know who I'm talking about. So the biggest lesson of all 
But it, the one that I want everybody to hear is that the virus isn't going to go away. And that as soon as you get it in your community, you must act rapidly to stop outbreaks from building up. And you must make sure that your health services are properly organized. Now, the last point about the World Health Organization. This is a, an organization that's made up of public health experts from all over the world. It's a network. And these public health people come together through the World Health Organization. They share what they're seeing. They compare their experiences. And yes, they learn lessons and apply them as quickly as possible. The World Health Organization is governed by 194 countries. They're called member states. And they set the rules within which we operate. They tell us that we have to take the information that we receive from countries and act on that information. But they haven't given us the power to go into countries to do forensic examination of what they're, what they're doing. And so we rely on information we receive and we act incredibly quickly as soon as we know what's happening. At the beginning of any outbreak, it takes a few days to work things out, perhaps sometimes even longer if you're trying to struggle to make sense of the information you receive, especially with something that's new. But on this particular outbreak, I can say, hand on heart, that we acted extremely rapidly. We followed the rules that we work under and we issued warnings, particularly on the 30th of January, when we declared that COVID-19 is a public health emergency of international concern, our highest level of alert. We said that countries need to act quickly to contain outbreaks. We explained to them what has to be done. And we said that we were really worried about poorer nations because they lack the economic uh, capacity to be able to support their small and medium enterprises and to keep people in employment. And we said to the whole world, beware of the impact that this virus is going to have on poor countries and poor communities. We don't like being proved right because our whole mission is to prevent bad outbreaks and pandemics from happening. But when they do happen, we want to continue to show the lessons we've learned. And so my final words are, take this virus seriously. It's going to be with us for the foreseeable future. And if you get new outbreaks, act extremely rapidly to contain them. And if you do that, the rest of the economy and life can be kept going. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, David. Uh, that was a very good, succinct answer. Also, just a point for our viewers who may not know, the WHO actually, the, its roots go back to the Rockefeller Foundation, and it's an older organization at the United, than the United Nations itself. So in this day and age, when some world leaders are making a sport of dismantling international levers, it's important to know that there are these important dedicated organizations out there. Before I go to our uh, next speaker, I would like to thank our funders, Global Affairs Canada, the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, the IMF, USAID, Jersey Overseas Aid, and Comic Relief, without whom we could not achieve our global mission. Also, we're very delighted that today we have uh, basically 400 and uh, 50 or so participants uh, representing 44 countries ranging all the way from Armenia to Zimbabwe and all the letters and countries in between and Angil of course as well and a number of agencies and time zone has not been a barrier. We have participants from Australia, Indonesia as well as Latin America, Europe, Africa and elsewhere. 
So it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Uh, Stefan Ingves, the governor of the Central Bank of Sweden, who's also the chair of uh, Toronto Center. Uh, Stefan, in my opening remarks, I made a point uh, that saying that since the WHO declared uh, coronavirus a pandemic, the world authorities had to deal with a grim calculus of uh, uh, stark choices between life, death, and the economy. And uh, you are known for your effective handling of complicated financial crises around the world. We're talking about the new normal. Is it a nostalgic fantasy to want to go back to pre-crisis global financial standards and regulations post-COVID? Or will we be forced to cope with a new normal? Thank you. Uh, thank you, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to say a few words on, 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 on this uh, topic. Uh, being a central banker, when uh, we talked about uh, normal, let's say three, four months ago, basically what we had in mind back then was low real uh, interest rates, uh, how long rates would be stay low, low, and what would happen next when things would uh, normalize. But normalize back then had a completely different meaning compared to what it has has today. We also discussed many times higher external debt levels uh, in many uh, emerging market economies. Now when we think about a new normal, it's a completely different type of uh, new, uh, new normal. And uh, this is hard to deal with for economists uh, because uh, we're struggling with the fact that uh, we are not the experts in the room. Others know a lot more about what is going on and we still have to deal with it. Uh, as best as uh, as best as we can because it's obvious that if you shut down the whole economy in one way or the other you uh, will have all sorts of economic issues that you need to deal with uh, we have tried our best to compensate for that uh, and uh, we've done a lot and we can do more if we have to uh, but at the same time all the things going on are not fully dependent at all actually on what we do it's really dependent on what happens uh, happens with the virus and how that process is being being uh, handled and that means of course also that the economic um, developments and how this thing how this evolves over time is highly dependent on the severity of the process uh, now uh, how long it will go on what happens when uh, various restrictions are eased what happens if various restrictions are let's say uh, reimposed and that means that it's hard to judge today what a new normal uh, will look like. Suppose just for the sake of the argument that everything were to cease, come to a halt tomorrow, it's over uh, the pandemic. Well, it still would take quite, quite some time for trade production and employment to kind of get back to uh, where we uh, were before this, uh, this happens. So that's probably a multi-year process uh, with the different, different difficulties in different corners of the world and in different uh, countries. Now, when it comes to thinking about these things, though, most economists are trained to think about it in terms of projections. And actually, one way of, of explaining what I do as an economist and a central banker is that I'm kind of an economics weatherman. Uh, I'm telling stories about the future. And when I tell those stories about the future and uh, what's going on in various economies, particularly, of course, my own economy, uh, in, in a good scenario, people actually believe what I say. Uh, this time, it's a lot harder uh, because this is so different compared to what we normally, uh, normally uh, deal, uh, deal with. First of all, uh, this 
ability to uh, make various types of projections that has served that serves as well also under the present uh, present conditions but one major difficulty and difference now is that it's not only about the economics of it all it's also about the projections done by the epidemiologists and somehow and that's quite a challenge actually to get epidemiologists and economists to talk to each other most of the most of those guys who actually build the models they have a similar background in statistics and math it's just that the models in the past have been used for different purposes and they're not really trained to talk to each other but now they have to do that in order to better understand uh, what is uh, what is going on so a few reflections then given where we are and given what happens uh, presently and this is partly based on my own experience dealing with the multiple financial crises in my own country and then also in a fair large number of countries uh, all over the uh, all over the world first of all if you want to preserve confidence you actually have to be able and willing to communicate because if you don't communicate at all people make up their own stories about the future and then they head for the exit in one way uh, one way or the other now many many policymakers i've learned over the years find it extremely unpleasant to communicate and to stay honest and but in the end at the end of the day that's the only thing you can do that that is really really what it uh, what is required secondly uh, once you have gotten over that hurdle and actually start talking about what's going on and what you think will be going on in the future you have to understand the vulnerabilities in your own uh, uh, economy. Here, if you don't deal with those vulnerabilities or if you don't want to understand them or if you have not tried to understand them in the past, liquidity issues in the financial sector will with a fairly high likelihood move into uh, solvency or rather insolvency issues. So for that reason, it really, really pays to try to be on top on uh, top on uh, things. Then if things blow up, well, then uh, time is of essence and you have to decide things and you have for, you have to forget about the seventh decimal and some of the niceties. That means that when you do what you have to do, uh, some of the things will just flatly be wrong, but it's better to do than not to do. And then if things are a bit off then you correct as you go uh, so uh, gradually you actually work yourself uh, uh, through uh, to a crisis and once you get to the end then you try to draw some lessons uh, coming uh, out of out of that then when it comes to vulnerabilities the financial sector vulnerabilities they are likely to differ and differ substantially from uh, from country uh, to country so far all of this has mostly been dealt with at the national uh, national level uh, when it comes to the economics of it all. Eventually, this is going to require various kinds of international cooperation, and that, that, that is absolutely necessary. So far, uh, it's been mostly information sharing, and we have, that have, have had some uh, swap lines, uh, particularly in the U using the US dollar uh, in the central banking uh, community. But uh, eventually, uh, this, this will have to move into something more ideally with more global cooperation than what we have had uh, so so far now some of the issues that come to the fore under the present circumstances are for example what happens in the financial sector when you undertake a fairly large number of fiscal measures of different types and some of those fiscal measures are actually directed towards the financial sector in fun, in one form or, or the other 
That's one issue. Another issue is how do you use actually various liquidity management tools? Because after the global financial crisis, for the first time ever at the global level, we started putting in place various types of liquidity management tools, but they haven't really been used that much because all of a sudden this shows up and you have to actually use those tools and see whether they uh, seem to work or not. At least in, in the... In, 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 in the wealthier countries, we're highly we highly likely will see a fairly large number of downgrades in the corporate sector. Then what does that do? What happens if large investors hold a lot of corporate sector debt and all of a sudden all, of, all that debt is downgraded in one form or the other? Another issue that will show up and has come to the fore in a number of countries already is how do you deal with dividend payments, paying bonuses and things like that? an issue which is relevant, uh, well, uh, but at the same time actually highly uh, politically uh, sensitive. One way or the other, it has to be, it, it has to be dealt with. One, another issue is what happens, particularly in, in countries with very large financial markets, when asset prices drop, and if asset prices drop a lot, then you have to deal with margin calls and all sorts of other consequences uh, uh, following, uh, following from that. These are the issues that supervisors deal with in many, many parts of the world. But then you also have the IMF and the World Bank and the IMF and the World Bank, they essentially end up helping out on the liquidity side, doing at the global level, the work that the central banks and central bankers tend to do at the national level in many, many parts, parts of the world. And so far, if I remember correctly, the IMF is absolutely inundated with requests for funding in one uh, in one form uh, or the other, and that will actually be quite quite a lot of hard hard work when it uh, comes to dealing with the, uh, dealing with that. Now, in all in in all of this, it's of course also helpful uh, to have the Toronto Center uh, supplying training, uh, but training has uh, has changed completely because. Uh, People working for the Toronto Center used to travel the world, and now you see Babak sitting there with the airphones, and and that means that in some sense the whole thing has to be retooled, and we need to find new ways of uh, dealing with this. But that takes me back to the original question: What does then the new normal really uh, really uh, look like? It's hard to uh, hard to tell, but focusing focusing a bit on on the supervisory issues. Right now, what happens when it comes to both liquidity and capital adequacy in many, many uh, parts of the world, uh, the supervisors and the central banks are allowing their firms in the financial sector to draw down on their uh, liquidity buffers and also on their uh, capital uh, buffers. Uh, LCR standards are being tweaked, capital buffers uh, are being tweaked, amortization uh, requirements are being held back and things like, uh, things like that. But what this also means that eventually when uh, uh, economies normalize, it will be very important to actually bring back those buffers. We should not use this uh, episode, this really, really difficult episode uh, as a pretext to allow capital charges and liquidity requirements just to fall, fall, fall because if history gives us any guidance, we do know that if we don't build up buffers in the good day, good times, uh, then uh, things will get really, really much, much worse in bad times when we have to deal with all these, all these things. So I do think that it's important uh, on the one hand to presently change various prudential regulations, uh, but it is, it's also very important not to change those prudential regulations uh, 
permanent, permanently. Eventually, interest, interest rates will hopefully one day go back, back up. And when the dust settles, both on the central banking side and on the supervisory side, we will have uh, quite uh, the work set out for us, uh, normalizing in terms of uh, prudential requirements and uh, monetary, monetary policy. But right now, we aren't there yet. We're far from there. So right now, the name of the game is very basic, very simple. Make sure that uh, everything that's going on now in the real economy does not migrate into the financial sector. Let's try uh, hard to making things staying outside the financial sector, while at the same time, it's our job to ensure that the financial sector continues working. And uh, on the supervisory side, there are a whole host of difficult issues to deal with. And on the central banking side, essentially what we do is that we produce money and make sure that there is enough money in the system. Thank you. Stefan, that was a very good way of summing it all together. Uh, one thing you mentioned is that it's a difficulty between economists and epidemiologists to talk to one another. But I can tell you, for the majority of the people that I know, since we've been in a lockdown, we've had a lot of time to watch the news and hear all these phrases. So I hear from my mother-in-law, children, everybody else, things such as supply shock, monetary policy, flattening the curve, contact tracing. So these things have really infused into the public domain now. Now, moving on to Socorro. Socorro, last time you were here with us in late March, Peru had only about 300 cases of COVID-19, no deaths today, 124,000 cases and 3,600 deaths. That's just one country. So, you know, the stakes are high for everyone, including for you in Peru. So COVID-19 has changed how supervisors work. In the new normal, how can supervisors ensure they are still able to oversee financial services firms remotely? Tell us about the opportunities and also the risks, please. Thank you. Thank you, Vavak. Um, I cannot stress, in, stress enough uh, all the big challenges that this virus uh, implies and, and the lockdown measures that have been taken to uh, mitigate the impact of the virus. Peru took a very aggressive uh, approach uh, regarding a lockdown uh, with the exception of a few uh, essential sectors, uh, most of the economy has been locked down. And we have to face the realities of an emerging economy with a very high informal sector. Uh, in, in our case, uh, more than 50% of our economy is informally, which means that they have to work uh, on a daily basis to make ends meet. Uh, many people do not have refrigerators, so they have to go to the market every day. So in that context, the lockdown has, uh, poses a lot of challenges for the people. And that's why you see that in spite of the lockdown and, and all the efforts that the government has made to control the, uh, the virus, uh, the crisis grew uh, at the beginning. And right now it's, it's starting to stabilize. Uh, luckily. Um, so everybody has to adapt to this new, new normal. And uh, of course, the, the prior strengths of the financial system and of the regulatory framework and infrastructure are, are important to help us cope with this situation. Uh, but I think that the most important asset that we may have in this, in this moment is the capacity to adapt both uh, financial institutions 
and regulators have to adapt to this new situation because what is going to happen in, what is going to happen is what we have now is the lockdown is being eased the economy is starting to open we are doing it by stages but many of the things are going to change for a long time so financial institutions are going to have to change their business models and their organization to be able to work remotely for, for a very long period of time. And the challenge is gonna be especially large for microfinance institutions that have business models that are based essentially on direct contact with their businesses, with, with, the, with, the, with the customers. On loan officers going directly to the businesses and contacting them on a personal basis. And uh, this change in the business model that they're gonna to have to do is gonna bring new untested risks for this microfinance industry. So that is one of the issues that we're gonna to have to consider. On the other hand, for us supervisors, uh, of course, we're gonna to have to change too. And we are changing on a very uh, uh, quick way. Uh, we are changing from thinking about working remotely for a short period of time to working remotely for a very long period of time, because this is gonna uh, last for a while. And we are using this challenge as an opportunity to refocus our strategy and accelerate the digital transformation of our institution. So what are we doing? Well, first of all, uh, as, as, as you all know, uh, supervisors are all working remotely and uh, with uh, laptops and access to the information systems and the databases. And, and this is a challenge in itself for all supervisors. Uh, they have to deal with uh, the quality of their internet in their homes. They have to deal with the children, their, their children homeschooling and their partners using the internet service and things like that. But of course, uh, working remotely poses additional risks, uh, information security risks that can have to be controlled with strong uh, protocols or uh, mitigated with strong security protocols. Um, so what do we do in this context? So what are we doing in this context? First, we rely strongly on two supervisory tools, off-site supervision and very intensive communication and contact with different levels of management and staff of banking institutions and board of banking institutions at the different levels of the supervisory agency. In terms of offsite supervision, we have to revamp it in order to fill in the gaps that are gonna appear because we are not being able to conduct on-site supervision. Um, so, what are we doing to do that? Well, first we have set up a digital platform that allows us to exchange information with financial institutions. Uh, and uh, and in, through this digital platform, we are exchanging the information that we would normally uh, access on an on-site uh, supervision. Um, the platform can also be used to update and follow up on supervisory recommendations and observations. Um, in addition, the 
the strong uh, periodic reporting that we have as a supervisors and we've had for a long time allows us to conduct a lot of data analysis from offsite without the need to link into the bank's databases. And then in addition, to ensure that all material risks are being supervised, uh, we have to uh, use our rating, internal ratings of, of, of our supervisory ratings of financial institutions to assess whether uh, there is a need uh, to do focused on-site inspections on a very exceptional basis. So we are determining what are the main vulnerabilities of each institution and not now, but maybe a month or two from now, we will start conducting on-site visits, but more focused, smaller teams, shorter visits to fill in the gaps that cannot be filled uh, on-site and off-site. And, and I um, relate a lot to what Stefan said before, on the, on the sense that we, we have to correct as we go. We, keep on, we have to keep on going and correct as you go. And there are all sorts of new risks that we have to look at. Uh, there are, of course, credit risk has increased uh, uh, significantly uh, because of the impact on, on the real economy of the, of the lockdown measures. And uh, we are gonna have to assess credit risk more closely. And liquidity risks, of course, have to be monitored uh, on a, on a daily basis. Uh, cybersecurity risks have improved or have increased and, and we have to deal with that. Um, there are all sorts of other uh, things that were minor issues before, but there are threats that we have to deal with like phishing and all sorts of other uh, fraud attempts uh, on the financial system that need to be uh, controlled. So the, the, the this pandemic is presenting the supervisors with big challenges. We have to be able to concentrate on the important, on the short round, uh, 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 without losing sight of the long-term issues. And it means, um, in some cases, postponing the things that are not immediately uh, necessary from the point of view of the supervisor. It also means uh, uh, that we are going to have to review this on a permanent basis. Um, another challenge or risk that we have is the information security. I mean, we can all only imperfectly mitigate information security risks from working remotely from home. Uh, there are many, many possible sources of information technology or information security risks uh, in this context. Then, because we moved very fast to work remotely, we are using, in some cases, new processes that are untested. So we have new supervisory risks from our own new business uh, supervisory model. And, uh, there are new risks that we have to deal with from uh, uh, the way that the, the institutions are working. So this is basically what I would like to say.
Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Sakura. You really did uh, provide the waterfront and these issues are very complex for our viewers. I just want to highlight that Sakura touched on a lot of different issues that deal with business continuity planning for supervisors, how to do your work remotely. Please visit crisis at torontocenter.org. We have a lot of resources for you to look, review, and think through. And uh, so, you know, we're happy to help with a lot of these issues. And for you, Dr. Navarro, the context here is that supervision is very much a hands-on relationship management issue. So technology can only go so far and supervisors usually don't get a positive press release when something happens or they've done something great, but they always get a finger of blame pointed at them when there's a financial crisis somewhere. So the stakes can't be much higher in our sector. Uh, back to you, David. Um, so while we're noticing some tapering off in Europe and US in terms of numbers of deaths, although cases seem to be growing, uh, we are seeing rapid escalation of uh, cases and uh, deaths, unfortunately, in Brazil, Mexico, Peru, Ecuador, just to name a few. Is this just limited to Latin America or should we be concerned about the escalation of COVID-19 in developing countries and what are the implications? Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Babak. If action is not taken, this virus is capable of dividing uh, and uh, multiplying, I should say, at a very rapid rate. Outbreaks increase in size, doubling every two and a half days. Now, the reason why outbreaks have slowed in Western Europe and the US is because of the impact of the lockdown, which has reduced the opportunity for transmission to occur. As movement resumes, transmission will increase again, and the only way it can be stopped is by having capacity at local level in all societies to identify with people with the disease and to isolate them, interrupting transmission. That's going to be the new reality everywhere if we're going to be able to live with this virus. So you're right, it's spreading extremely rapidly uh, in places where movement restrictions are hard to implement, like that's slum areas in different cities in India. Also, favelas and villas and other close, uh, um, close settlements in Latin America. But it's also spreading in parts of Africa too. It's just that we don't know the full detail because testing is not available in a widespread way. What I want to stress is that it's a, it's a constant threat everywhere, this virus. And the only way we can stop it from overwhelming societies is by defending against it. And defending against it means interrupting transmission as soon as it starts, preventing transmission through physical distancing, through wearing face protection, and through other similar activities, as well as having the capacity when necessary to move quickly to limit movement and actually contain an outbreak when it builds up. That's going to be the situation everywhere. It's the new normal, uh, just as you've been discussing through the other panelists, the new normal in the financial system. It's also a new normal in the way in which all of us are going to have to live until there's a vaccine that everybody can take that protects against infection. And I personally don't know when that's going to happen. So we're just going to have to learn to live with this virus as a reality for all of us and it applies to every country and every community in the world. Um, sobering uh, assessment there. Stefan, yeah. moving to you, uh, 
Uh, you are the governor of the, I guess, longest uh, running central bank in the world and gold coins were introduced, paper money. Do you think that moving to digital currencies will be the next natural evolution for central banks in the new normal, especially now that A, cash is considered a contaminant and B, other non-financial institutions without public accountability, such as Facebook, Shopify, are rushing to get in the game to fill the vacuum. Thank you. Well, uh, first of all, when it comes to money, and we certainly have this uh, debate uh, domestically, and I was in one store the other day, and they had a big sign saying that we don't take cash uh, due to the coronavirus. I mean, at least what our medical experts tell us is that uh, cash is not more contaminating or contaminated and then many other uh, things so in that respect there's nothing particular uh, about uh, about cash but being being with that as it uh, as it may it doesn't really matter i think how many times we say this uh, people have a preference for moving into electronic transactions in one form or the other and uh, the more people are supposed to or expected to uh, stay at home or uh, stay away from other individuals the more, of course, you actually push these transactions into various uh, electronic uh, electronic forms. Now, when you do that, uh, that raises uh, many, many fascinating issues when it comes to money or using the plural monies, uh, because it kind of takes us back to the 1800s. And why am I saying that? Because in the 1800s, everything was on paper. Now, moving forward, and this will be, of course, different in different parts of the world, nothing will be on paper. So everything will be, or most of it will be electronic in one form or the other. And then there will be, of course, uh, differences in different parts of the world, depending on to what extent you have the skills uh, uh, needed to, do, to, to run everything in an electronic uh, uh, way. But that also raises age-old issues when it comes to money and payments. And uh, when, as you mentioned, Babak, you have various private sector initiatives, take Facebook, Libra, or Bitcoin, or whatever the name of all these new phenomena that show up. If history gives us any guidance, eventually the public sector is going to have to get involved in one form or the other. And eventually a good chunk of this in, in one form or the other will revert back to uh, central banks because central banks, uh, they are the ultimate backstop. And uh, normally when, when you produce new monies, again, using the plural in the private sector, you end up using to, producing too much of it. And then you lose credibility and you have all sorts of very, very difficult issues uh, to deal with that. Unfortunately, on the public sector side, there is also a tendency to, to, to produce too much of the too much of the money as well and uh, then you sort of lose it uh, in, in, in that respect there as well but eventually yes uh, my uh, view is that uh, central banks will have to move with the times and if technology changes uh, it won't work to use uh, yesterday's uh, technology but it will be quite different in different corners uh, different corners of the world and this will be also uh, reflecting a bit on the work of the Toronto Center very very important when it comes to financial inclusion uh, because financial inclusion will uh, change shape and form uh, when you don't go to a branch office anymore 
because you do your business, you, you make your payments, deposit money uh, using your cell phone or a fairly, uh, fairly cheap uh, computer. And that, of course, means that on the central banking side and on the supervisory side, uh, when it comes to new technologies, uh, we sure have to make sure that everybody can use these new technologies and that they are cheap. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Stefan. Uh, and now, so, Socorro, this is an interesting setup for your question, which is uh, crisis always put a spotlight on the issues of financial inclusion and gender equality, including literacy, access, and so forth. So is there a silver lining in that the response to this pandemic could accelerate and broaden the digitization of payments for the benefit of the poor? And how can supervisors and regulators help respond or be on, you know, be vigilant about it. Thank you. Well, yes, uh, thank you very much for the question. Um, I'm, I'm sure this, uh, this situation is going to accelerate the digitalization of uh, all the financial system and, and, and the economies. Uh, it, is, it is happening as, as, as we speak right now. Um, and the digitalization of payments is, is, is going to be probably one, one of the most important uh, issues. Um, particularly, I mean, in, in the past, uh, digital payments and, and transactions have been carried out more by relatively well-off uh, citizens, younger people um, in urban areas but it is starting to expand to other areas to other other people are finding that this is useful that it, it, it uh, having a bank account or a, an electronic money wallet is useful for uh, avoiding contagion long lines saving time conducting transactions on a more safe way so i think uh, uh, it is, it, is, it is going to be important. Uh, Peru is, a, as I said before, a highly uh, informal economy with very, very uh, intensive use of cash transactions. And over the past 10 years, there have been a lot of efforts by, by regulators and by financial institutions to introduce digital payments. And this has been happening. Uh, uh, regulatory efforts have included, have included uh, electronic money regulation, uh, crowdfunding regulation, uh, the, the establishment of uh, bank agents is in small businesses. Uh, all these things have helped uh, financial inclusion over the past years. But electronic money didn't pick up or it had some mixed results, I think, until until more recently. Um, we are um, a very, 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 very low percentage of the population using digital transactions. Uh, but a lot of the population using, for instance, these bank agents, because the bank agents are uh, convenient for, for most of the people. Um, in the context of uh, COVID, the Peruvian government did some cash transfers uh, to the people to try to mitigate the impact of the lockdown, of not being able to uh, work. So the government granted subsidies and used the banking system as the first uh, 
uh, way to distribute the money. And what we had was, at the beginning, very, very long lines of people uh, waiting to, to cash uh, this, the government subsidy. Um, as soon as we saw this, we changed some of the regulations uh, to ease the use of electronic money for these purposes. First, we had to increase the limits because we had very small transaction limits that uh, made it very difficult to use electronic money on a more intensive basis. We increased the limits for individual transactions and for cumulative transactions. We also changed a little bit the regulations regarding the collateral that the electronic money providers have to use to operate uh, with electronic money. And uh, all these changes have been very well received and now it's starting to pick up and electronic money is starting to be more used in the distribution of government subsidies, for instance. Uh, it is very early to know whether this is gonna be, have a lasting impact, uh, but uh, they are encouraging news uh, so far. Uh, thank you, um, very good, thank you. And also just to put it in perspective, uh, uh, we, we firmly believe here at Toronto Centre that it's so important to develop those platforms you were talking about, but it goes beyond that. It's about having the proper regulatory framework, supervisory capacity to make sure abuses don't happen, while at the same time, if supervisors need to get out of the way, they know how to get out of the way, but make sure that the vigilance on the system is not compromised. David, uh, there's a question here, it's an interesting one, and it's something that I actually had in mind, and you and I briefly touched based on it. There's a lot of... Um, interest on a vaccine. You know, we read a lot about the vaccine, Oxford trial here, there. There's this assumption that once the vaccine is discovered, uh, tomorrow we're going to go back to new normal. But I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Could you please talk about the distributional justice issues around it and versus all the scientific things that you know? How do we, who are so anxious uh, about the uh, new normal, understand how vaccines will come into play in this role, in, in this new world. Yeah. Thank you, Babak, and thanks to the questioner. I'm really hopeful that a vaccine against this novel coronavirus will be found and found quickly and shown to be safe and at the same time effective. But I'm also quite cautious. You know, we've been looking for a vaccine that will immunize people against HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, for more than two and a half decades. And billions of dollars have been spent on the hunt, and one has not yet been found. And I think that's just a reminder that when you're trying to develop a vaccine against a virus, you're taking advantage of biological processes inside an individual's body in order to build up resistance to the virus. What you do is you mimic the virus by creating some extract from the virus. You inject it into people. It doesn't cause the disease, but it does lead to antibodies being developed. And then you hope, and I have to stress hope, that this will be sufficient to protect against infection by the virus should you encounter it as you go about your life. Okay, so the first thing you have to do is to have what we call a candidate vaccine, which means an extract of this COVID virus that you can actually inject in people to invoke an immune response. 
Well, there are some candidates and they're quite well publicized. You just mentioned some of them, Bebek. So that part at least is moving ahead quite nicely. The second stage is to make absolutely certain that whoever you give this vaccine to, you've got a very low likelihood of any kind of adverse reaction. Because the last thing you want is a vaccine that causes problems, because that will immediately lead people to say, oh, well, I don't want to have it. And then the second thing you've got to do is to make sure that the antibodies that are produced by the vaccine actually protect against infection over a long period of time, because it's no good having partial protection or having protection that um, is only lasting, say, for half a year or something like that. Testing safety, testing efficacy takes time. And so I'm anticipating that it will be about 18 months before all the due diligence is done, all the necessary trials are done, and the safety and efficacy of these new vaccines is demonstrated. Of course, there are people talking about cutting corners and trying to find quicker ways of doing it, to which I say, yep, by all means, look at cutting corners, but remember, the reason why we have all these steps to go through when developing a vaccine is simply because the last thing that any of us want to do is to do harm. And then the third step and your main question is, okay, so you have a vaccine. How can you produce at least 7.8 billion doses? How can you get the vaccine to everybody and not end up with a situation that you've got a nice vaccine, but only those nations who've got plenty of wealth can actually have the vaccine and others somehow get to the end of the queue. We've had that before. We're dealing with other challenges and that's where global solidarity really counts. That's where nations working together and agreeing protocols that ensure that those who most need the vaccine can be first in line, whilst at the same time ensuring that nobody is forced in any way at all to have a vaccine unless somebody somewhere really decides that that's the approach they want to take. But I'm really against any kind of forcing because that just provokes people who are upset about vaccines uh, to actually get to even more upset and resist it. So unless world leaders can come together and agree on a protocol for ensuring fair shares of any new vaccine, I think we'll have some major rows. And, and I'm very keen to encourage that it is distributional justice, as you say, because otherwise it would be really unfair. Thank you. Absolutely. There's no point in having a vaccine available and it's only be available for the privileged few. Yeah. So thank you. And then this other question, Dr. Navarro, goes to you only because I know your time is limited. This is from one of our colleagues in Nigeria. My yeah. question to David is the number of deaths in African countries compared with the developed countries is smaller, apparently mm -hmm. due to the level of testing in African countries, thus bringing erroneous complacency. Don't you think it is better to consider the ratio of death to the number of infections rather than the number of infections? So first of all, thank you for the question. I mean, there have been real hopes that this virus in poorer nations with their different age structure might have fewer complications. We hoped also that perhaps when in hot areas, the virus would spread less easily. But I think you're right. This virus is causing major challenges. Now, also you're right in that the actual number of cases is unclear because testing is not widespread and death records are not well kept 
in Africa, people's cause of death is rarely identified. And so I totally agree with you that complacency is not a good thing, but at the same time, the figures for what's happening in Africa are very hard indeed to interpret. Uh, I would like to suggest that everybody everywhere just recognizes that this is a dangerous virus that we all have to take it seriously. It of course has to be put alongside other dangers that we have and in communities in Nigeria there are many other infectious threats so you shouldn't say COVID is the only one but COVID is one of many health threats that have to be taken into account in all populations and we do encourage everybody in their communities to take it seriously because it's only at community level that we can deal with it effectively. And yes, I agree with you that unfortunately, the figures for numbers of cases or even numbers of people tested to be positive and deaths in different parts of the world now are unfortunately inaccurate simply because the reporting is incomplete. So thanks again for your question and I wish you well and all the people in Nigeria I wish you well as you do your best to learn to live with this virus and to limit the damage that it causes. Thank you very much, David. Just for our audience, uh, we're going to go for another 20 minutes. I know David would have to leave. So David, if, uh, uh, if whenever you need to leave, that's fine. But we're very appreciative of the fact that you've been here. If you're able to hang on longer, great. But I'm going to leave it to you. This next question goes to uh, Governor Ingves. Uh, uh, Stefan, you emphasize the importance of ensuring the health crisis does not migrate into the financial sector. Is it not the case that the sector is already feeling the effects? Yeah, that's certainly, that is certainly the case. But this, uh, 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 this uh, crisis is different in the sense that when you deal with a financial crisis, normally it starts uh, with some kind of a macroeconomic imbalance in one form or the other. And then uh, you also have uh, all sorts of uh, issues within the financial sector itself. This time is different because here you have an event which is completely unexpected, at least if you're an economist, and it sort of is completely, it starts completely outside the financial sector. But clearly, if the general economic developments will be such that various economies in the world come to a halt or to a standstill for a long, long time, then eventually all these things will move into the financial sector as well. And that is, uh, of course, then one, uh, one of the issues that we will have to deal with. Most central banks in the world today are providing plenty of money to the financial sector. So no one is, in most countries, going to run out of money in the short run. But eventually, if this goes on, because let's say it takes several years, uh, non-performing loans will increase. And then we will have a debate about accounting rules because we always have a debate about accounting rules when non-performing loans increase. And there are always those who are in favor of saying that uh, something should be accounted for at 100 when it's actually worth 25. And then there are others who say, if it's worth 25, you're dead already. You need to do something about it. So that debate uh, certainly is going to, uh, going to come, uh, come back. But we really have to do our best to try to deal with these issues before they sort of massively move into the, into the financial sector. And the best thing we can do, I think, uh, in most economies is to make sure that uh, the macro, the macroeconomic developments get reasonably uh, back, uh, back, on, uh, back on track. But when I say so, 
I'm very, very mindful of the fact that I don't pass judgment at all on, on the uh, pandemic and what comes out of it on that, on, on that side. And that's why it's so hard to deal with these issues because when it comes to dealing with a pandemic, many issues are uh, moral. You deal with value judgments and that has to then in one way or the other to be combined with what's going on in the, in, in the economy. So nothing of this is sort of easy to uh, deal with. I'm also quite convinced that, that when, when uh, growth is uh, slowing or actually growth is being negative because that's the way it, it is happening today because economies are uh, shrinking, then all sorts of, n of known vulnerabilities uh, will uh, resurface and uh, problems that people have actually known about for some years can't uh, be hidden or denied. You, you can't be in denial anymore. So eventually you're just going to have to, uh, to deal with it. And, and that will be, of course, very, very tricky. But as I said, did not start in the financial sector. And uh, we have to be vigilant, vigilant uh, both on the supervisory side, but also on the bank uh, restructuring side, uh, making sure that it, uh, what's going on uh, does not make the financial sector as such a stall completely. Thanks. Thank you. Stefan, it's very interesting. I was listening to you. Obviously, uh, my impression is going back to the great financial crisis, uh, as complicated, as devastating that was, the fight was simpler in the sense that you had culprits. You had the financial sector as the culprits, the greedy ones. And people like you and your colleagues in Socorro, you were the first responders, you were the essential workers, you were the fighting ones. But this pandemic, the interesting thing about it is it's such a universal experience for all of us. And all of us are trying to make sure we are doing what we can to stabilize the situation. That's about all we can do, right? Until we get to, as he said, the vaccines and all that. So Cora, I'm gonna pass the next question to you. You very eloquently talked about the challenges that supervisors are facing in terms of postponing some activities and uh, how to do things offsite. This question is more strategic. What longer term changes, if any, uh, should or must financial regulators and supervisors make to their policies, processes, and uh, procedures as a result of this pandemic? What are you learning today that can be helpful in the long term, assuming that, you know, we're living in an uncertain world? I guess that's the spirit of this question. <clears throat> uh, well, uh, first of all, if, if the business models are going to move to a more digital uh, way of uh, operating for all financial institutions, uh, a lot more attention is going to have to be paid to information security and to cyber risks and things like that. So that that is a, an area that it was already important before, but uh, it's I mean the, the, its importance is is uh, grown exponentially in this in this new normal. Uh, so that's the first thing. Uh, then there are all sorts of uh, things, uh, of, of ways in which risks could come to the financial system that we had not thought of. Uh, of course, uh, we never thought about continuity planning for a pandemic before, at least not in Peru. So we are going to have to be more creative for uh, with related to continuity scenarios, um, so that's 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 the second thing. 
the third thing has to do with um, uh, strengthening off-site supervision and learning to do more intensive, more effective off-site supervision for the longer term. Um, and then there, there's uh, the issue of uh, how are you going to deal with uh, the, the, the short-term needs to reduce some of the prudential regulations uh, and the long-term needs of putting them back in place. Uh, it is it is very important that when you uh, loosen some of the of the of the prudential regulations, you have the capacity to put them back and build them up again. Uh, at this at this time, there is not enough uh, information to create uh, a timeline, but very soon we're going to have to to think about those issues. So never lose sight of the long term. Thank you. And Stefan, I'm going to pass this question, next one to you. Can you please say something more about how your own organization, I guess in this case, Rexbank, have been affected by the pandemic and the policies implemented to mitigate it? Which functions and activities are prioritized? Some activities and functions that are put on hold. Well, of course, uh, we had all our budgets and our planning and uh, all, all those sort of normal things that, uh, that, that you have. And then, uh, let's say, mid-March, we realized that the world is changing and the world is changing completely. And uh, then, uh, based on that, we fairly soon also came to the conclusion that uh, people will have to work from home. Uh, so presently about 75%, roughly 75, maybe some days, almost 80% of our staff are working from home. And when you do that, and as you can see my background in my office at home, it really, really is a crash course uh, using Skype, Zoom, WebEx, uh, whatever the name of these, these things that you use uh, nowadays. And all of a sudden, everybody had to figure out how to do these things. And then you run into all sorts of issues when it comes to bandwidth and, and doing things in ways that are completely new. And then it has also on the HR side put some very new and different demands on us because you actually have to talk to people when they're working from home. And you must not forget about them and you have to get in touch with your staff. And then you also have to have a system where you uh, rotate staff members into the office uh, uh, once, uh, uh, once in a while. Uh, now, this is a kind of a rhythm that we have um, found presently, uh, but it hasn't been all that easy. And as I said, it has put quite a lot of demands on, on us and on our IT department. And it also so happens, and that's what happens in the real, in the real world, that exactly when this happened, we were also going through a process uh, where we were moving from one IT services provider to another. And that, of course, creates, creates all sorts of IT cybersecurity vulnerabilities that you have to deal with at the same time. While, while of course, at the, uh, when you do that, it just won't work to have all systems being down, let's say, for 24 hours or something, uh, something like that. So that's, uh, that's uh, on the how we are kind of how we are running things then of course 
in terms of doing things, we have very rapidly and uh, sizably actually expanded our balance sheet because we're buying government debt, we're buying corporate debt, we're lending to banks and are expected to lend lend to uh, corporates, we're buying mortgage bonds, we're, buy, we're doing all sorts of things that uh, most people never ever expected to do, uh, particularly those who are more, let me call it theoretically inclined. And the models just don't help us anymore because this is uh, this is in real time, and then you just have to decide what to do and what not to do. And also another aspect of, of the work that I'm participating in is that all my travel is gone, and it used to be that uh, I traveled quite a lot and uh, also went to all sorts of uh, international meetings in different parts of, different parts of the world. Now uh, everything is over the phone or Skype, Zoom, and all these uh, all these things, and uh, it's different. Uh, but we do our best to keep things uh, keep things running. Uh, but uh, similarly to what we heard before, that you have to make sure that you deal with cybersecurity. You have to make sure that you deal with your IT systems, and you have to speed up uh, your own uh, educational processes in such a way that you don't use. Uh, use a ballpoint pen on the telephone anymore. You have to adapt using all this modern stuff. Of course, uh, Stefan, is the issue of the video fatigue or screen fatigue. And I think we probably need to form a support group, but unfortunately we can't do it over video, right? So mm -hmm. something to think about. Uh, the next one is for you, Socorro. Mr. Socorro suggested that supervisors concentrate, what is import concentrate on what is important and postpone what is not necessary. Can you please give us some examples in each category? Thank you. Well, everything is important. But <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, let's see, we, ha we had a lot of uh, regulations that we had issued recently or that we were developing um, and we were planning to issue. So the first thing that we have done is we have phased, uh, uh, phased out the implementation of new regulations by, by financial institutions uh, uh, because basically the, the financial institutions are now concentrated on uh, dealing with their IT departments or anything that it requires the IT department of a financial institution uh, it is difficult to implement now because they have to concentrate on the most basic uh, needs of being able to operate in the new environment. So we are facing out many of the new regulations, the ones that we were planning to issue and the ones that we had already issued. So that is one uh, clear uh, cut uh, case. Then we are concentrating, what, what is important now? Well, credit risk, uh, sufficiency of provisioning is, is going to be a constant issue for the past, for the next uh, year, two, three years. Uh, we're going to have to concentrate a lot on, 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 on understanding uh, what is the, the value of these portfolios. So credit risk, sufficiency of provision, uh, solvency of financial institutions, and liquidity of financial institutions are the most important issues. You cannot uh, uh, stressed enough the importance of, this, of these issues. Of course, you cannot lose uh, sight of cybersecurity and continuity issues and information security issues. 
related to the, the, the new business models. But those are the, the, the key areas of importance and, and, and new developments are basically, and, and, and long-term plans are the things that are being sort of postponed or being carried out by staff that are not involved in the trenches, no? Uh, so that, those, are, those are the basics. Thank you. Uh, Stefan, this next question is for you. There has been a reduction of money velocity due to the preferences for digital payments i.e. electronic transfers, credit cards, uh, debit cards, etc. What is the impact you expect in the medium term on price levels, inflation, due to that phenomenon? Well, that's a, kind of a bit of a technical, technical thing. I really don't think that it matters. If people are moving out of cash and moving into electronic payments, it doesn't really matter when it comes to the inflation rate. Ultimately, what, what matters is how you run monetary policy, the size of the balance sheet of the central bank and things like, things like that. And we do know that velocity is kind of varies over, over time. So I, I really don't think it's uh, from a monetary policy point of view that, that, difficult, uh, that difficult an issue. What one has to do, of course, though running a central bank, which is the same on the supervisory side, is to understand what structural change is taking, taking place within the financial sector itself. Uh, because uh, you really need to understand how the, how the financial sector and how it operates changes gradually over time and then uh, what, that, what that implies uh, when it comes to what you are expected to do, uh, running monetary policy or dealing with the super uh, supervisory issues, and nothing is nothing is constant. And uh, we do know that we have a number of new players, and all those new players are uh, trying to use new technologies. Some of them are invented domestically, and some of them will show up from abroad in in one uh, one form or the other. And then you just have to understand what's going on and and go with the go with the flow. Uh, a very kind of non-technical answer to this question is to say the following, that when everything is electronic, it becomes harder and harder to answer the question, where is my money? Is it in the cloud? Or where is the server? And, and, and things like that. And those, uh, those issues uh, represent uh, us on the supervisory and central banking side with uh, completely new challenges because we're trained to think about money in a very sort of physical way and all the physical aspects of money will uh, soon be gone in one form or the other. Thank you. And uh, uh, Socorro, I'm gonna give this last question to you. We don't have a lot of time left, but, and it's a big question. So hopefully you can find one part of it that you can just uh, give us some insights on. How to maintain a balance between prudential supervision and the relaxation of measures that have been taken temporarily so that financial institutions can face the COVID-19 and avoid a high deterioration in their portfolios and solvency? Well, first, I mean, you are facing very difficult trade-offs uh, trade as a regulator. We are facing difficult trade-offs as a regulator. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Maintaining all the regulation, the population regulations and requirements the way they are uh, could uh, force the regulator to close down banks, or financial institutions that could, in the, uh, if given a little time, 
can recover and can raise the capital and can and can and can do well. But on the other hand, if you relax the the prudential regulations too much, you may end up with institutions that do not have enough capital and that are operating basically uh, under very, very high risks for the depositors money and the creditors money. So those two uh, need to be balanced as, as the question uh, posed. And it's, a, it's an extremely difficult balance and you are gonna need to be looking at it uh, constantly to be sure we're not making mistakes and revising it uh, constantly. Um, in, the, in, the, in the short term, what we have done is we have uh, allowed some leeway on, on, on provisioning for financial institutions to uh, facilitate the reprogramming of loans because it's very difficult to assess the capacity to repay debtors that are in the middle of a lockdown. But that has to be a very short term thing. Uh, very, very quickly, uh, I mean, in the next few months, uh, I, I believe provisions will have to reflect what the value of the loans. And then you will end up with probably institutions that do not generate enough uh, revenue to constitute the, net, the required provisions. And we're going to have to do uh, uh, probably lower lowering some of the capital requirements. We have already started lowering some of the capital requirements, like there's the cyclical components or the cyclical provisioning components were the first ones to go. Uh, lowering other capital requirements is much more controversial because uh, basically they are uh, more tailored to individual risks of individual institutions. Uh, but um, in the context of allowing the, the, the system to continue to operate, you can do a, a lowering of, of some of these requirements, and, and, uh, but being sure that you have enough capital for the system to operate, like a minimum level of capital for the system, of good quality capital for the system to continue operation. It is, it is essential that a minimum level of uh, uh, of, of good quality capital is maintained by, by all institutions. And then you will need to, uh, to implement or give time for the institutions to raise the additional or the higher levels of capital in, 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 different, in different ways uh, from their own shareholders, from third uh, party uh, private shareholders, or if needed, in some cases, even government-assisted uh, uh, programs. But, but, but this is what is gonna be needed. That's, that's great, thank you very much. Uh, we're coming to basically the end. We could have gone probably another hour or so, but you know, everyone's time is very precious. A Couple of things we quickly learned in the new normal is correct as you go, learn as you go, make sure that the, the systems you're working on are vigilant, uh, focus on the priorities, we were blessed with very strong, eloquent speakers. Uh, thank you, Socorro, thank you, Stefan. And of course, thank you to uh, Dr. Nabara who had to leave earlier. He is in the front line, so to speak. But uh, you're also in a different front line. Now, every, every night in Toronto at 7.30 p.m., people uh, bang pots and pans to, you know, to show their support for the health workers. I think we need to 
bang our calculators and iPhones to show support for the people who are maintaining the soundness and safety of our financial system. And also a big thank you to Diana Bird and Demek Janakshi of our team who are working very hard tirelessly behind the scene to put these seminars together. So thank you everyone. And we left a lot of questions on the table just to let you know, Socorro and, and, uh, and uh, Stefan, as I was reading the questions, the question numbers were coming down. We're leaving 22 questions on the table. So that's the problem of the moderator, but these questions are not gonna go to waste. We're gonna keep them. One way or another, we'll try to address them either through our courses, through future webinars, or if we have another chance with the speakers, we'll bring them back to you. Thank you, everyone. Take care, goodbye, and stay safe and healthy. Bye. Thank you, thank you so much. Bye now, bye now. Bye, bye. Thank you very much. Thank you.